A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, worlds, altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the Year in Film Podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by our very own consulting producer and podcaster, Emily Gagne, and pop culture expert and writer, Sydney Urbanek. The early 2000s were a media circus for young women celebrities. Some pop stars, some actresses, some famous for being famous. In 2002, we're still three years off from TMZ opening up shop and two years off from Perez Hilton's website, Toxic Mean Girl Antics. But before it all went to hell, 2002 was a year of young, particularly women celebrities, putting themselves out there and at least trying to take control of their own narratives. Or so it seemed. Now, Sydney, what was going on in 2002? Like, we know Britney Spears was around. We're actually not quite at Paris Hilton's simple life yet, I think. No, um, I don't think so. At least I'd have I'd have to check. But, you know, 2002, especially early 2002, is sort of this bizarre moment, um, pop culturally, especially in the Western world, because obviously 2001 had ended with 9-11. And so a lot of the next little while is this weird mix of, on one hand, you know, patriotic, I love the flag, reassessing our values type stuff. And on the other hand, there are all these projects that were already in the works when 9-11 happened that still had to come out. So in Hollywood and on shows like <clears throat> Sex and the City, you know, everyone's editing the Twin Towers out of things. The ending of Lilo and Stitch gets changed to, to not even like evoke the tragedy in any way. Um, but then some of the biggest movies ultimately of 2002 are movies like Crossroads and, of course, Austin Powers and Goldmember. So film, filmed in like 2001 or early 2002. Eight Mile is another 2001 filmed star vehicle that comes out later in 2002. And I think those are definitely the three big music industry projects of the year. You could argue that Chicago is another one. You could throw in A Walk to Remember, which I think was early, early 2002. And like there are always these big pop star movie vehicles. It's something that originates like almost as early as sound films do, but there are sometimes these little bursts of them. And 2002 in hindsight seems to have been one of those. It seems like uh, a lot of critics are like almost ready for the attack for these pop star vehicles. Like every single critic is like they go after Mandy Moore in a walk to remember. And then they start comparing Britney Spears unfavorably to Mandy Moore. And you're just like, no, 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 you just attacked Mandy Moore. You can't have it both ways. Um, but then people also forget that Glitter, although not a great film in a lot of respects, tanked because it came out at the same time as the Twin Towers mm -hmm. went down. Like it came out in 2001 within that same time. And that's one of the reasons it didn't do well. It's not just because it it just didn't hit the zeitgeist. Yeah, there, I think it was actually the same day. Like the release date was the 11th. Then there's that really like... Oh yeah, I um, know what you're going to say. Darkly funny. It, there's that shot of from downtown New York City and there's like a glitter billboard <laughs> in the shot. It's not oh, funny. Really? But it's not, you know, it's not not funny mm -hmm. um, on paper. No, it's funny. It's funny strange rather than funny haha. -ha. It's like, of course, of course, it's glitter. Yeah. yeah. And I, I was trying to figure out like what the burst was, because sometimes there are like real um, obvious reasons for like a given burst of pop star vehicles. Like after A Hard Day's Night came out, everyone made their own, for example. So I think part of it, like with 2002, late 2001, early 2002, is like some of these stars in question are at kind of similar ages and stages. Britney and Beyonce are born a few months apart. And 
Part of it is that it's the heyday of TRL. So there's this really great infrastructure if you want to promote like a teen-oriented movie starring a huge music star with some kind of music or music video tie-in that's going to help promote it. Um, But I think like with all the names that have come up in this last little bit, like every star probably in their own head had a unique reason for wanting to get into movies. Um, With Eminem, there's some riffing on his origin story. With Beyonce, there's a desire to be like a funnier, lighter figure because she was thought to be very like robotic and had sort of suffered a wave of bad press in the whole like Destiny's Child lineup change. Um, And with Britney, I think it's probably a mix of things. I always think about how she wanted to play a different part in this film. She wanted to play Mimi, which is the the teen that's pregnant in the film. And I think about mm. how I think she wanted to take control of her narrative and maybe express some things about herself that she wasn't allowed to. Instead, she plays Lucy, which is basically another version of the the Britney that we wanted to see, which was like this like girl next door perfect but also kind of sexy character who uh is virginal but willing to give it up kind of thing and so i i feel like everything that i've read about crossroads and the making of crossroads was sort of an attempt for her to to bring it back to herself to say i know what i want and i i want to mold my image a little bit more in my own image there's also a bunch of interviews that are coming out now with christina aguilera uh, like modern day current interviews coming out with her where she's sort of reevaluating and reassessing and actually talking about her early career and saying that, you know, her genie in the bottle, which was like, you know, her big breakout song was had nothing to do with her. That was the manufactured. That was just the image that was thrown upon her. But she really took more control when she was getting into Dirty, which is the same year as this. Like we're sitting like at 2001, 2002. And that was really like the grungier, cooler image she wanted to do. I feel like Pink kind of did the same thing. Pink sort of went, okay, I'm manufactured and you're going to make, I'm going to get here and the party's going to start. And then it's going to be all about my mother after this. And you're all along for the ride. (laughs) You know, (laughs) like this, this does seem to be kind of a time where pop stars are seemingly at least trying to grab their own image and being like, we think this is what the modern girl should be. This is, we understand we're role models and this is what we think people want to see. What do you guys think? You know, this is after the girl power wave that the Spice Girls started. And I think that like even being a young woman coming into her own at this time myself, like I remember feeling very empowered that I could, you know, do whatever I wanted. And I think that, um, you know, pop stars would feel the same way and 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 want to be empowered to do it their own way. When you're a, a pop star, I was just thinking about Christina Aguilera, when you're a pop star who gets famous as a teenager and you'd like people to see you as a grown-up um, so that you can express yourself in a more like adult way, sing about maybe more interesting things, there are very different ways you can approach it. Um you know, Madonna never had to do it because she broke through at like 25. Beyonce arguably did it at 30, um, in her 30s rather, at that point, like safely married, a mother, safely married. It's a different ballpark also, like if you're a black woman. Um, mm-hmm. Taylor Swift has in some ways opted to like carve out a career never doing it, which is for another time. But I'd say most stars, which when they get to be around 19, 20, opt for what I think of as sort of a band-aid ripoff 
um, or something closer to, to that ballpark. Miley Cyrus wrecking ball, like that kind of thing. Yes, for Got example. It. So, and other recent examples would be like Chloe Bailey of Chloe and Holly. Um, Billie Eilish did this a couple years ago with all the like blonde bombshell pinup magazine covers she did. And honestly, now that I'm saying all of this, it's really not like as supercharged a thing for men, obviously. Um, but mm. the Band-Aid approach is useful because you sort of unleash the wave of criticism and the think pieces all at once. You get it over with and then it's old news. Um, but with Brittany in late 2001, she turned 20, I believe. And in the lead up to that had been sort of adultifying her image and had gone for for more of a, this is going to sound bad, but kind of like a slow Band-Aid ripoff throughout the year mm -hmm. <laughs> so it was that fall uh, that she performed like I'm a slave for you with the with the snake at the VMAs and in October released her self-titled album very good album by the way love it love it and so there was a lot of talk about like this new Britney this more grown-up Britney that we haven't yet seen before um, and this role in Crossroads really taps into that or maybe winks at it these ongoing discussions about whether she was still a really good Southern Christian girl, um, which is to say a virgin, um, or this potential like corrupting influence on little girls. And it was the latter role that was arguably starting to sort of come out on top between the music itself and then the whole like Justin Timberlake relationship being such a big part of the brand at the time. And so I think the fact that Crossroads is this like coming of age story about a well-behaved teenage girl from a small town where the movie's very much geared towards little girls, that's all very purposeful and it makes it very, it makes it especially interesting. And, you know, we can talk later if you want about like what happens right after this film comes out. Like, I think this film comes out in February and the breakup happens in March and then everything kind of like... <laughs> That's when the world yes. falls apart. Uh, let's let's get into that because I mean this is a uh, here comes a deep dive, guys, and I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just there's a, there's going to be a lot here. It's a it's a big movie to dig into. There's just so many things involved. So I think to kind of get crossroads and to understand, you know, Britney Spears, like everyone's like, she's always been around. And yeah, because she's always been around. Britney Spears has been performing since she was three. Her first televised appearance was on Star Search at 10. She was in the Mickey Mouse Club starting at 11. At 15, she had her first solo record deal. And by 18, she was one of the biggest female pop stars on the planet. Two years later, she was dating Justin Timberlake, releasing more multi-platinum albums, dealing with media intent on making her a role model for little girls everywhere, and starring in her feature film debut. But ironically, as we mentioned, she was at a crossroads herself. Now, Sydney, do you want to give us a little bit of a plot rundown of this one? Yeah. So there are these three girls, Lucy, Mimi, Kit, who as little girls make a pact that on graduation day, they bury this box of like their hopes and dreams for the future. And on graduation day, they're going to come back and dig it up. And so we fast forward to them graduating from high school, at which point they've drifted apart. Three very different, you know, once upon a time, three very different little girls. Um, and what they find in the box kickstarts this. It's essentially a road movie because they go to LA and it's really a film that's more about the the journey than the destination and the way that they kind of, what they learn about themselves along the way and what, what their individual 
goals are. Lucy wants to reconnect with her estranged mother. Mimi, who is pregnant at the beginning of the film, wants to go and audition for a record deal. And then Lucy, who's the sort of, she's like the popular Zoe Saldana character, wants to see her sketchy who doesn't seem to ever want to talk to her over the phone. Pretty much. So, yeah, so is, is she's on her journey to see her mom. Okay, now I want to preface this by saying uh, I understand both of you are Britney heads. I was not a Britney head at this point. Uh, I am wearing my Death to the Pixies t-shirt today, not on purpose. I just realized I was, but this is a uh, very much representative of where my head was at sitting in the early 2000s. So my initial reaction to a concept of a Britney Spears movie would have been like, well, that's not for me. Like, it's going to be cutesy, it's going to be girly, and that's just not, I, you know, I'm more interested in slamming my body as hard as I can into men three times bigger than I am <laughs> while people scream on stage. Like, that. that's kind of where I was sitting. Um, so, watching it now as an adult, I was like, holy shit, this movie is dark. <laughs> like, where, mm-hmm. where did some of these plot lines come from? But they're also handling this darkness with this, like, sleepover party, you don't need to have intense conversations attitude that is just, I don't think I've ever seen a movie quite like this tonally before. It is bizarre. And I mean that in a very good way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's awesome. I mean, I loved this movie when it came out. I was so excited because I was a Britney head. And just a little fun uh, bit of trivia about me is I entered a contest with the Toronto Star to see Crossroads early, <laughs> and I won. Uh, <laughs> and you can see the photos if you go on my Instagram. I, like, did, like, a photo shoot with all of my Britney memorabilia. I even had, like, a standee of her from the Pepsi advertisements. Anyways, I won, and I got to go in a limo with my friends to see Crossroads a few days early, and I was so pleased with the movie and I went with mainly female friends I had only one guy with me it blew my mind because I felt like it treated girls seriously while also letting them have fun which I think a lot of movies at this time didn't do it was either like really really serious or really really fluffy and this really melded both of those things and in that way I think it was really true to Britney as we've come to know her to be like we thought that she was one thing but she's actually much more than we thought and so in a way I think it's like a perfect artifact of Britney Spears if this ends up being the only thing that she starred in it really to me represents who she is as a pop culture entity I don't know if you feel the same Sydney yeah well I think like the thing that this movie really gets and captures that has kind of, depending on who you are, if you're not either of us, um, something that's sort of been lost in the last decade and a half is the like bubbly, very like scene ceiling, charming personality that she's always had. And that in sort of like during her imperial years, if you want to call them that, like we saw that all the time. It was like the big thing on display in her interviews. It was sort of alongside her talent it's what she brought to the table in lieu of like being the book smart kid um which she was just like hilarious and sort of ceaselessly watchable and just very charming and um I I was a huge Britney head as we keep saying as a kid but and like my first concert I ever saw was the um Onyx Hotel tour which I think was like I saw two years after this movie came out I was a couple years too young to see this movie when it came out and because it's like very weirdly hard 
to find, to watch anywhere. I saw it for the first time, Emily, when you screened it in 2019. Really? Yeah, I had never seen it. And this is sort of circling back to like a couple of things we've been saying, but you know, you what you hear about Crossroads when you haven't seen it is like, it's so bad, it's so bad. One of the worst movies ever, won a bunch of Razzies. And then when I saw it, I was like, this is fine. Like this is, this is a fine. There's nothing wrong with it. It's exactly what it should be for this kind of movie. It's just totally, it's weird because it's dealing with extremely dark subject, subject matter, but like glossing over that subject matter in a way that like, yeah, is kind of appropriate for that age group that this film was aimed at. But the biggest thing that was a surprise for me is I'm like, she's not bad. Like, she is doing exactly what she is supposed to do. She, as you said, she's charming on screen. She's very pleasant. Uh, I didn't find her annoying mm-hmm. at all. It's not overly saturated with, like, jukebox musical songs. I think she sings, what, like, two, three times, maybe? Like, it's just, it's, it's, and in, most of the time they're singing other people's songs because this is co-produced with Jive Records. So, like, everybody's doing Jive Records stuff. And MTV, so, of course, it would be, uh, it would have all this great music licensing, which is one of the reasons why we probably don't have as much of it as possible because this would be a very expensive movie to pay for all the music rights for. It it was just very surprising to me that I was like, this is watchable. Like, very, and I, more than watchable. Like, there, this does not deserve the reputation it mm-hmm. has. No way. No way. I... I've screened this movie twice and I'll screen it again (laughs) because I think it's a good movie and I think she's good at it. If anything, no offense to the Shonda Rhimes heads out there. The script, I think, is maybe the weaker point of it. But the fact that Brittany is able to make so much out of this script, like she literally has to poetically speak the lyrics to I'm not a girl, not yet a woman out loud. (laughs) It feels like I'm caught in the middle, and that's when I realize that I'm not a girl, I'm not yet a woman. All I need is time, just a moment that's mine. And I know every time we've screened it, people laugh, but like when you hear the song, it's you kind of just get into it. But when you hear it separated from the song, it does sound really cheesy, and I get it, but she still pulls it off. And I always think about this scene, like when she comes back, um, after she meets her mother, who's played by Kim Cattrall. And Kim Cattrall is in the movie because Britney loved Sex in the City and wanted Kim Cattrall to play her mother. Uh, I think she's really good. Like, I think that she's, like, channeling something there. She's got mom issues herself. She's got family issues herself. I hate the fact that Jamie Lynn Spears plays the yoga version of her. because makes <laughs> me want to die on reflection. But um, I think she's really bringing something here. And I, I feel like her heart is in this movie and so it, it breaks my heart that people tore this apart. Like, I'm a defender of Mariah Carey's Glitter, but I will admit that that's, like, maybe not the best movie. I will defend Crossroads until the end of time because I think it's it's actually not a bad movie at all. I think it's, I think it's a good movie. Uh, I think it's a kind of a great movie, but I, I'm highly biased. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Well, let's get into the making of. Okay, th- I am a little confused here because I'm seeing... Some things in some interviews and some things in oral histories where people are remembering the genesis of this slightly differently. Mm-hmm. Um, so it seems to me that they were always intending to have a Britney Spears vehicle. They just didn't know what it was going to be yet. And I love that when that MTV was already trying to produce something for her that I wish this existed. It was a um, Alice in Wonderland like music video mashup movie. Like uh, uh, NSYNC would have been in it. A bunch of other hip hop acts, like ton pop, tons of pop acts. 
And Brittany would have been the Alice who would have been hit by a VW bug and then sent into like a coma and then like journey through Wonderland and all these different musical acts, which is, I really wish this movie existed. So instead <laughs> we have Crossroads, which is totally fine. So Shonda Rhimes gets discovered because she makes an all black version of Antigone uh, by a woman for, who was originally working for Jive Records in their music video department named Anne Carley. Mm-hmm. And she is like, well, I'm just coming from Jive and I feel like we could pitch something to them. And I feel like Britney Spears is the person we could write for. So they go to Jive and they say they want to do something with Britney Spears. And then this is where it gets muddled for me because I see in a bunch of contemporary interviews from like 2002, everyone is saying that Britney Spears came up with the concept of like her and her pals and a road trip. And then the team created that afterwards. But then I'm seeing in modern oral histories that Shonda Rhimes and Anne Carley came up with the concept. Do we know what that was? Was it just PR so that it could be more personal for Brittany or what? Um, I think I would believe based on other instances of Brittany doing this throughout her career that she had like an idea that Shonda Rhimes and Anne Carley turned into more of like a, a screenplay with a beginning, middle, and end, because she's known, anyone that's ever worked with her, despite all of the accusations of like, she's a puppet, people make her talk, and she says the words, um, she's always coming up with ideas for videos, and sometimes like the most iconic image of a certain Things she's done is something that she did on the fly on set, stuff like that. Lots of people had ideas because I'm sure everyone wanted to cash in on it somehow. But she had this one, um, the rough outline of this one that went on to be sort of seen through to the finish line. Because it is a very, and even unusual today, it's a very female-driven production team. Uh, the crew, from my understanding, was like 85% women. Uh, it was actually, they, there was interviews with Ann Carley, the producer at the time, being like, are you trying to make some sort of political statement? She's like, no, I just hired the right people for the job. Um, and then, of course, we've talked about Tamara Davis before as a director when we talked about Gun Crazy. Uh, she's the director of this, and not only is she someone who I think handles these uh, women's stories extremely well. She's also someone who handles music movies extremely well. Like, she's got CB4 on her resume, tons of music videos. Like, she knows what she's doing. She's great. And she's great for this. Yeah, and she also uh, directed Billy Madison, mm-hmm. which was Adam Sandler's first vehicle as, like, a movie star. So I think that she also has that pedigree of helping somebody transition into a different part of their pop culture identity. Because I think she also did that with Drew Barrymore with Gun Crazy, but she also worked with Drew, I think, a couple other times. And I often think about Drew and Brittany in the same sort of breath because they are these women that have grown up in the public eye and have been criticized and have had to sort of transition and and uh, reclaim their narrative many different times. Um It's just that Drew has sort of been able to pick herself up a little bit more um, over the the course of time. And she just didn't have the same scrutiny that I think Brittany did. But um, Tamara Davis, I think, did a great job with this. And I think she was the right choice. I'm just so glad that this was directed and written by women because I think there's like another version of this that is directed by a man that is a lot more male gazy because that's what was happening with Brittany is men were looking and leering at her and giving us the image that they wanted to give us of Britney. Whereas this feels like, I really feel like, and maybe I'm just biased as a, as a Britney head. Uh, I really feel like this is coming from, from Britney in some way, shape or form. 
Yeah, it's definitely a film that feels very burly um, while you watch it. And it's just like an interesting bit of trivia is that Tamara Davis also did Half-Baked. And Mm -hmm. later on, like in 2011, when Britney made I Want to Go, there was this like extended Half-Baked tribute. So it was almost like she carried, like Guillermo Diaz was in that music video and he'd been in the movie and then she does this big riff on the like you know f you f you f you you're cool speech and it's like she carried Tamara davis like with her <laughs> in an interesting way into the future i really love telling people that i'm like yeah because Tamara davis did crossroads it's all connected <laughs> <laughs> is that the same video sydney where crossroads to cross harder is on the marquee is that the same one yes yes it is that's ridiculous. I love it. I, I mean, she does have that sense of humor, which I think carries through here. And Tamara Davis talks about how she wasn't sure if she wanted to do this film. Uh, but apparently, Britney Spears opened the door. She went to go visit her in Las Vegas, opened the door, wearing basically what you see in the opening scene, the tiny little shorts and the little camisole uh, top. And I was like, man, I got so hammered last night. Come on in. Let's <laughs> chat. And this was so different, as we mentioned earlier, from the image that Tamara Davis was used to seeing of her, because at this point, like, we had the whole, like, chastity pledge that she had done, and they were very much curating this good Southern girl image for her. But we now know things were, I mean, she's a woman in her, a young woman in her 20s with the world at her feet. We now know things were going in a different direction for her. Let's get into that a little bit, Sydney. This movie comes out. It seems like she was interested in doing more films, but then everything falls apart. How does that go? Well, I should say that initially she is in Austin Powers, which comes out in the, in, I think it's in July. Um, and she has a very quick but notable cameo at the very beginning of that movie where she turns out to be like a fembot and she explodes. Um, but she was a big part of the soundtrack and helped to market that movie. The movie was marketed through... It, just as a funny side note, that soundtrack was produced by Madonna's label, Maverick. And the two big singles that came out of it were Work It Out by Beyonce. And then a few months later, Boys by Britney Spears and Pharrell. And so Boys is on the soundtrack. And Austin Powers was like woven into Britney's Pepsi partnership. And that role, that appearance is a more hyper stylized sexual cameo compared to what she'd done in February in Crossroads. And at that point, the public narrative is that she's now a single star who has presumably cheated on Justin Timberlake. There was a real like turn in the public perception of the relationship where she was rebranded as sort of like a super skank. And So what she could have done in response to that was this big course correction where she does like a very demure, maybe she does like another film where she plays, I don't know, like a a preacher's daughter. It it would be up to her. But what she did instead was just like (laughs) continue to go down the path that she had been going down where she wanted to make more adult music and do more adult stuff. And then In the Zone, which is the album she would release in 2003, like really double down on that. Like, I am not interested in crawling back into a hole. I'm just going to, like, sort of steer this narrative as best as I can as I unfold it. 
from my understanding, a lot of that, like, and I mean, this is just so insane. A lot of that vitriol that was spewed towards her was driven by Justin Timberlake's camp in order to sell more of his album. Yeah, it really takes like, I would say it takes until the fall of 2002 for that to really become like a substantial component of the marketing. But yeah, the first album, the first single rather from the Justin Timberlake album, uh, Justified, doesn't do very well. It's like a standard like dance. Uh, I think it's like, I love you doesn't do very well. And so he goes back to the drawing board and makes Crimea river, which he actually makes with Francis Lawrence, who had made the slave for you video with Brittany. And it's, it takes until the end of the year for that to be like the new sort of narrative that he's going with, but it does start to like snowball over the course of 2002. Interesting. Now, you t- mentioned the the Pepsi partnership. Now, this is something I'm always curious about because I'm not someone who's ever purchased something because I've seen a celebrity do the ad for it or whatever, with the exception of Buble, because God, I love Michael Buble water. It's delicious. This film is just full of all of the brands that Britney was asp- associated with, from Pepsi to Herbal Essences. And obviously, she had something in her contract clause that if she was appearing with a product of this type, it had to be that type. But like, how valuable were these? I mean, obviously they're valuable contracts for her, but how valuable was she to these companies? I think she was a big deal. Like when I'm saying that contest that I won, I also won an Herbal Essences prize pack. (laughs) Like I had a huge basket full of Herbal Essences stuff. And I always think about how I grew up at a time when like they realized tweens were a market, Mm -hmm. not just teens, but tweens. And I was a tween. So I definitely bought Herbal Essences because Britney Spears advertised it. And the, the ad was like something like, oh, she stays home on a Friday night to wash her hair, which I guess is feeding into that sort of idea that she's a good girl and she's not going out on a Friday when we know that was like the furthest thing from the truth. And that's fine because she is a young girl, but this is the image that they wanted us to believe. But I think like we think about Pepsi and we think about Herbal Essences and we think about Britney. I think, I think she was a huge performer in terms of sales of of albums so why wouldn't she be a performer in terms of sales of shampoos and uh soft drinks you know I, like and it and it worked it worked on me i also want to just say this movie did well at the box office too mm-hmm. it made like 60 million dollars on a 12 million dollar budget and that's Britney. Like, I don't think any of the other pieces of the puzzle were selling this film. It was Britney that was selling this film. Well, and that's just box office. When you think what the VHS sales must have been or the DVD sales must have been for the at-home market, like, I mean, that's where they're really making their money. That would have been insane. Oh, yeah, for sure. And like, like you know, Sydney was saying earlier, there's lots of people that weren't probably allowed to go to the theater to see Crossroads and 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 found it on VHS, you know, rented it, um, secretly watched it at a sleepover. This is like this is like a quintessential sleepover mm-hmm. movie. This feels like Did something. you say quintessential? Because I love that. <laughs> I did not, but now I'm gonna pretend that I did. It is a quintessential. Um, but it is, it is. Like I remember I sh- I showed this movie to my cousin and I remember my aunt being like, this is not appropriate for young girls. And I was like, you know what? It is because I'm actually like learning about stuff. Like how many movies did I watch as a kid that like, you know, supported rape culture, essentially? This movie is like, it's not OK. Rape is not OK. Uh, this guy's not good. And also you shouldn't turn your back on your friend just because she was raped by your fiance. That's just a whole plot of this this movie. That's truly insane. Yeah. But I think it's on the right side of history in that, you know, 
Kit ends up being like, I'm so sorry that this happened. And I'm so sorry that I was so rude to you before about stuff like you, you were hurt. She takes her friend's side. And that's such a, to me, that's like such a positive, like message for young girls to be like, support the girls. Because initially I was like, okay, they're dealing with slut shaming, which, you know, very relevant in a Britney Spears world. And I can see why you would have it in there. But then when they added on that it was date rape that that was the cause of the pregnancy, and then she falls down the stairs and miscarries the baby, and then everything is fine. And they just sort of brush that off. That's the part where I was like, I'm sorry, what just happened? Like, that was just absolutely wild to me. Like, there's some stuff that does feel very age appropriate, you know, like dealing with Dan Aykroyd as an overbearing father in in this. And like, he does a really good job doing that overbearing father thing without becoming too cartoonish. Like some stuff I was like, okay, very relevant for that. But the, uh, the whole pregnancy plot line was the plot line that I was just like, okay, that is, I, I don't know how I would have handled that as a young person. And I don't know if it's handled in a way that you can really give it a giant thumbs up because it's just so, it almost feels too fluffy the way it's handled with how serious that issue is. I just wonder if maybe because Brittany wanted to play that part, if maybe that was like a bigger part and then they switched things around so it changed. I don't know. It's certainly very Shonda Rhimesy. I will say that. It, it, and it feels sometimes yeah. like this is, there, there was an attempt here to cram in like as many issues as possible but just like to your point Emily about how it was very much Britney that sold this film that got everyone into the theater it certainly wasn't like Dan Aykroyd and Kim Cattrall playing in a severe way against type because it's it's funny that she had Kim Cattrall as part of the project when that role like you know Samantha Jones there's nothing of Samantha Jones really in in this role this is like a huge bummer of a role that she plays as as lucy's mom but yeah i mean like britney was like the reigning pop princess at the time like she was one of the bigger to come back to like the herbal essences pepsi stuff like i think herbal essences is the more time capsule feel ones um whereas the pepsi ones are always going viral and recirculating on twitter but you know, Britney would make these original like jingles for them and they would release these limited edition CDs with like, you know, original music that Britney had made for Pepsi, had made for Herbal Essences. And then obviously Pepsi has a bigger history of working with, you know, the reigning pop star of a moment is. And I mean, Madonna sort of nuked her Pepsi sponsorship, but Michael Jackson was another Pepsi star, Beyonce was. And then more recently they've been doing like, Doja Cat, Chloe Bailey. Um, there might be a third one. Didn't they do it with Kendall Jenner? Was it one of the Jenners they did it with? And then yeah, with right. she got made fun of for it? Yeah, okay. that was one yes, of the failed right. ones. But they've been more successful in the past with their like music collaborations where they they really they really tied, the, they tangled the two brands together. Um, and with Britney, they did that successfully. Like when you look up on YouTube, Pepsi, Britney Spears, you get like an eight minute compilation of all of the ads she did over, you know, many, many years, including the big like gladiator one with Enrique Iglesias and Pink and Beyonce. I love that ad. Oh, it's brilliant marketing. I mean, that's the one, one of the biggest things I think you can say about Britney is that she is so easy to market. 
Like, how do you not look at this young woman and go, yeah, we can basically put anything in our hand and people are going to want to buy that thing. And that's exactly what happened is people bought those products. It's it's wild. I could talk about this movie forever, <laughs> uh, but I will, I will stop that. But I just wanted to say in your notes, you said um, you didn't know that Taryn Manning had a music career herself in no the, idea the the duo Boomcat. And I will say there's a Boomcat song in the film. Uh, in when they're in that uh, hotel in New Orleans, it's playing as they're dancing on the table. I think it's called like Crazy Love or something. Anyways, I got very into Boomcat after I saw this. <laughs> yeah, because I yeah. missed yeah. this movie, I didn't go down the like Taryn, uh, the that um rabbit hole until Orange is the New Black. Funny enough, because like I did watch Eight Mile, but for whatever reason, wasn't prompted by that film, but. The funniest line, one of the funniest moments in this movie is when she's explaining the like, she's defending her right to be like a pregnant pop star or whatever. And she's like, so what? I'll wear something slimming. I think that's yesterday. I, it just caught me totally off guard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's great in this movie. We're talking a lot about Britney, but I but before we move on to our next thing, I just want to say. The, the other girls in this film are great, too. Yeah. Uh, it, it's yeah. a great cast. Yeah. It's a great cast. Zoe Saldana, this is her, like, third movie, I think. She, her first one is Center Stage, uh, and she's great in Center Stage. But I think, like, this is a this is a different role for her, and you don't often get her to get to see her doing these, like, prissy prig roles either. And she's great at it. She's great at being the mean girl. Uh, and then, of course, Terry Manning, like, as we mentioned, huge year for her. She's in Eight Miles. She's also in White Oleander this year, and she does this. So it's... It, it's always surprising to me that Taryn Manning wasn't a megastar before Orange is the New Black. She was someone who was just always, like, very character actor, and then Orange is the New Black is where she becomes this megastar. It's, yeah, interesting human being. I'm sure we're going we're gonna to be talking about um, Eight Mile later on in the seasons. But for now, we are headed to Japan. Once again, Emily, we're headed to Japan a lot this season. And that's coming up after the break. <laughs> hey, Cam. Yes, Becky. <laughs> so dry. I love it. So we've been doing this show for a few years now, and we have this huge back catalog behind us, and it features so many amazing guests. <laughs> Not only have I really enjoyed sharing what I've learned, but also hearing so many different perspectives and stories from our guests has been really fun and enlightening. Uh, like Jay Baruchel talking about Canadian film. He really is that passionate about it. It's not an act. Yeah, I mean, it, that's the interesting thing, too, is everybody, even if you're like, this is a massive movie that everybody's seen, everybody's going to consume it differently. And I think that that's why we like to get on like a diversity of voices, because uh, quite often, yeah, you just don't expect what you expect. And I and I think it's been like very satisfying. Yeah, and I mean, then you get an episode like uh, Diabolik Magazine's incredible Kat Ellinger uh, talking about Yodorowsky's Holy Mountain. And I don't think I've heard the word uh, Beatles butthole used so intellectually <laughs> before, nor do I think I ever will again. And of course, you can hear her and all of our other amazing guests. Can't, of course, name them all for lack of time. You guys want to get back to the show and listen to our current amazing guests. So I'm going to let you do that right now. But if you want to hear more, of course, you can get episodes wherever you found this podcast, or you can visit hollywoodsuite.ca slash podcast. Okay, let's get back to the show. When we connect with a public persona through their media, it can be hard to disconnect who we think they are from who they actually are, i.e. Britney Spears. That concept is beautifully explored in the one-two punch of 1997's Perfect Blue and 2002's Millennium Actress. Satoshi Kon, the director behind both films, talked about them as two sides on the same coin— uh, while Perfect Blue is darker and more cynical about how we treat our celebrities, 
and how it affects them, Millennium Actress is brighter and warmer. And damn it, I cry at the end every single time this movie destroys me. Now, if you're discussing two close-to-perfect movies released back-to-back by a filmmaker, these would be in the running. Now, Emily, were you familiar with these films before we before we did this one? I had never seen Millennium Actress, but I had seen Perfect Blue. Uh, and I was really curious about Satoshi Kon's other work after watching Perfect Blue because it's such an interesting, challenging film that, you know, really resonates with me as as a young woman but also as like a fan of pop music but I thought that this was really interesting because I I love reading uh histories of actresses throughout their careers like it's it's something that I've done uh in podcasting before with uh what about Meryl so this really intrigued me and I I'm so glad that I got to watch it because it was such an interesting film not just in terms of you know talking about a woman's legacy and a woman's life in film, but like the way that this film is made is so uniquely challenging, even more so than I think Perfect Blue is. Yeah, it's definitely um, a more mature film than like there's, uh, Perfect Blue is is amazing, but I think Perfect Blue is definitely a younger film. It's definitely more of a thriller. It's definitely a little little trashier. This one is classy AF. <laughs> There's just yeah. genuine class across the way. And I think you can know a lot about Japanese cinema and know a lot about um, Japanese politics, especially the stuff that, that happens in Manchuria that gets like real dicey and real messy. And you can like take whole new Easter eggs out of this or you can just come to this completely fresh and be like, this movie is just real interesting and kind of a bit of a mind fuck. How is this one for you, Sydney? You hadn't seen this one before yet. I haven't seen either of them, but I had seen Paprika in the past. Oh, there's a there's a jumping in. Yeah. Okay. So yes. in some ways, that was like I'd seen everything. You know, I'd seen Paprika, so I was like, okay, I'm I'm good. I can handle any kind of like narrative weirdness here. Let's do this. And then even then, I was still like, whoa. <laughs> as I was saying, yeah, four dream sequences. Yeah, yeah. As I was saying earlier, sometimes it's nice to just like not have to just sort of be free of the like traditional narrative storytelling methods that like most Hollywood movies use. But yeah, I was certainly, these are two very different films. I do think there's something really interesting about like Perfect Blue and like contemporary fan culture or stan culture, if you want to call it, and how it works on the internet. Like it's, it's sort of wild that it's like an early, early internet movie that already is like predicting how the internet's going to go. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty bananas. Well, before we get into that, we will be discussing both Perfect Blue because they're just so closely tied together and the one film really inspired the other one. Um, there is a 2002 live-action remake of Perfect Blue, but it's based on the book, not on the movie. And the book, the literally the only thing that the book Perfect Blue has in common with the movie is, and he literally says this, he's like, I kept idle stalker and uh and pop star and he's like those are the only three things i really kept and everything else i just threw out the window and made my own movie but before we get any further uh millennium actress emily what is this movie about i think this one like when you watch it narratively it doesn't make sense but i think maybe it condenses into like a log line well i think i can i'm gonna try i'm gonna try okay uh so two documentary filmmakers visit a reclusive movie star Uh, in hopes of getting her to reflect on her career because the studio that she made all her pictures with uh, has gone bankrupt. Uh, Throughout this interview, they unlock the truth behind her entrance and exit into the film industry as she retells her life story 
through literal and figurative scenes from her past. There's this melding of reality and and fiction because we see these sequences from the films that she made, but they sort of turn into actual events that happened in her life. And we learn, I said unlock because there's a, there's a literal key that is featured throughout the film that she's on the, she keeps with her and is this keepsake from this interaction that she had when she was a young woman with this painter who uh, ends up getting jailed because he's sort of a, a rogue in a time and he imprints on her and she basically becomes an actress because she wants this guy to know where she is. And uh, that's such a like beautiful and tragic idea. I just like, I understand why you, I didn't cry, but I understand why you cried, Becky, because it's, it is such a tragic, uh, beautiful story. As someone who works in the arts, it's a movie about why artists do what they do. Even though you suffer and it's hard and, you know, it will be over one day and there is like a, a, although you don't really see a lot of the glamorous element of what she does. Like, it's just, it's a really difficult, painful journey for her to kind of jump from one thing to the other because it's just about her seeking this this man. She's not actually seeking this man. She's seeking the next adventure and it's about the next adventure. And that's what the arts are about, right? Like you're, and you you hear so many filmmakers and actors and whatever being like, I don't talk about what's behind me, really. I, I look at what's ahead. What's my next project? What am I doing now? And to have an older actress the fact that it's an actress and not an actor is also fascinating that so many of Satoshi Khan's movies are about women and highlight women. They aren't about um, aren't about men, I think is just such a unique point of view, especially the way we tend to discard our women, even including in Japanese culture, there's like a whole similar gap that we have here where like they hit the age of 35, 40, career dies until they turn 60 to 70 again and we can have them back as grandmas, right? Or like as uh, psycho killers in like in like the hagsploitation genre. Like it, it's, it's weird that that kind of, I mean, it's fertility stuff, but it's weird that that kind of cultural stuff transcends everything. Do you know what I mean? It's tragic. It's tragic. And also like the idea that like a woman is like frozen in time because she says like, oh, he won't, know what I'm like anymore because I don't look like the little girl that he met, you know, the young woman that he met. Um, I think a lot about how, like, would Marilyn Monroe, for example, be as, like, iconic if she no. got to age, you know? Same but as we, James Dean. They died. They're frozen in time. That's just what it yeah, is. Yeah, exactly. They're frozen in time. So we we only have one version of them and we just, we idolize that one version and we we don't have the chance to see these people change. And it's interesting when we're talking about this in relation to Britney, where I think like Britney has changed and that's the issue is people are like, oh, she's not what we wanted her to be. So we're upset with it and we can't we can't reconcile with it. You know um, what? Like, do you agree, Sydney? Like, I feel like we we can't accept that Britney is not what we want her to be um, in the same way that I don't know that, like, if the lead from this film had been allowed to sort of like age and if she had, if she continued to work, we like might not that even the guy that's like idolizing her in this film might not have, you know, been so taken with her if he got to see her, the real her before he really does. Yeah. It's a really interesting movie about how like the movies or any art that means so much to you. I'm looking at it through the eyes of like the two filmmakers making the documentary. This artist has like a completely different reason that she made these films, a completely different relationship to them. And like, they're coming at it as like a, 
for the love of movies. And she has this sort of ulterior through line that's connecting all of the work. Like Crossroads, it's, you know, about the it's about the journey and not about the destination. And it's interesting that that turns out to be the sort of moral at the end of both films. But yeah, obviously, as someone who pays like really close attention to say like Madonna, it's a really interesting phenomenon. But I have a very specific, weird example of our inability to let Britney do anything basically on her own terms, which is that her least watched music video, which I was, I, I tend to seek these out just sort of out of interest, but her least watched music video on YouTube is someday I will understand the one where she's like very pregnant with her first son, black and white, like really beautiful expectant mother singing to her son. The public like didn't really care. Like didn't really want that. It's not obviously YouTube views in a very obvious sense, translate to like, how important was this? How well did this sell? And I think you could pull some kind of conclusion out of that, that like, we don't, and obviously when I say we, I don't mean like the three of us, but culturally we don't want Brittany like pregnant and happy on her own terms. We wanted her for a certain thing and any any way that she's gone against that mold Ever since, like, there's some kind of, like, pushback. I was thinking about that a lot. I, I don't remember if it was last year or the year before where she was pregnant and then no longer pregnant. But there was this, like, we can only accept that kind of story if it's in the most, like, exploitative, not on her own terms way possible. But when she does put out, you know, this glowing, I can't wait to be a mom, I hope I'm going to be a good mom thing we don't like the public just does not give it the time of day. It's uh, something I think you're seeing in the darker side of it on uh, Perfect Blue is about a uh, pop idol who decides to go solo and join and, and leave her her girl group behind uh, and become a serious actress. So something very similar to what we're looking at with, you know, the Britney Spears thing. Sydney, can you talk a little bit about like the 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 pop? Like I know there's a big difference between the pop idol in North America versus the pop idol in Japan. Like they're different different entities. Yeah, it's just it's a context that has its own set of like conventions and history. I just want to like be mindful of that, I guess. But um, it's a really interesting story about like fans who claim to know a star better than the star knows themselves and this movie like makes that idea literal in like the most literal sense it can like you are not yourself I I can't say it really surprised me actually to learn after watching the film that Khan wasn't necessarily like a J-pop fan because I do think both of these movies lend themselves to a very maybe cynical like anti-stardom anti-pop reading but I don't know I'm curious what you guys would, would say to that I don't know if I saw this film as cynical as I did Perfect Blue. Like, Perfect Blue feels pretty pretty dark to me. This film sort of feels like the lead character is sort of, like, using film to express herself and, and to sort of deal with some of her inner demons and her her um, neuroses um, with life. It's like she's able to... Per- like, there's that one scene where she is... Um, trying to act and the the other actress is like oh she's not doing it she's not doing it right and then she like channels her actual emotions um from life and then she does a great performance and and I felt like this film was sort of like 
being an actress, although maybe wasn't her first choice, was actually like helpful to keep her going and to to motivate her and to give her meaning, which is kind of what I think that this film is saying. And this film, I think, has more of a positive portrayal of like the relationship between, you know, the idol and the fan, because I think that the, the fan in this case, I I was I was worried that he was going to be a bad man. Like the whole movie, I was like, oh, he's going to take advantage of her because of because of this idea that we have that um, fandom can be really toxic. But at the end of the day, like in this film, he saves her literally several different times, which that's a little bit complicated about. But I think this film is sort of saying that we can have a positive relationship, like the the idol and the fan can have a positive relationship. It doesn't have to be as intense and it actually can be a good thing whereas perfect blue feels like more explicitly like uh, this is a problem this could be a bigger problem yeah it's it's interesting the way like i mentioned many of his films um are about women they're all about the way we perceive time and memory like every single one is about fantasy versus reality dreams time memory even um he passed away in 2011 very suddenly of pancreatic cancer like he was diagnosed and then he was gone he didn't even announce that he was just they just announced his death um he still has a movie in the works that they've been trying to finance since that time that is uh, for kids called the dream machine they've been trying to finance um but what's interesting is when he talks about writing about women specifically he says, because I'm a man, I know what uh, what every male character is thinking. Even if he's supposed to be very cool, I can see the bad side of him. That makes it very difficult to create a male character. On the other hand, if you write a female protagonist because it's the opposite sex and I don't know them the way I know a male, I can project my obsession onto the characters and expand the aspects I want to describe. <laughs> so it's like... Hold on a minute, <laughs> because I think both of these women have some, like even the Paprika character have some complexity to them. Things are coming from their point of view, but there is still an innocence that is projected on all of these characters. There is still an objectification. There is still, it, it's still it, him as a male filmmaker telling these women who they should be and all, and, 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 and all these men telling these women who they should be, which is absolutely fascinating that all of these movies also involve all those things. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting to think about like who the other women in the story are who are not the, the lead. Because yeah. um, in Perfect Blue, obviously she's got her like former group mates. And um, so that, that film has more women in it. But I can't say that, you know, <laughs> it's not Crossroads, that's what I'll say. But I'm just like half joking there, but I guess in Millennium Actress, like she's sort of this sole woman figure where the only other one that we've really been introduced to is this um, aging star who feels like uh, by default threatened by her presence and the fact that she's being kind of ushered out of her own reign. I think it's interesting. I, when I read that con quote, I was thinking, hmm, <laughs> <laughs> you don't say what are, what are you trying to say here <laughs> yeah yeah it's uh, so this is also uh, perfect blue as you mentioned was based in a book this is an original work so uh satoshi Kon is technically the co-writer on both films uh he wrote it with sadayuki murai who wrote both millennium actress and perfect blue but this one is based on the life of kind of two like two women are 
the inspiration for this film, where is which is where it gets kind of interesting in Japanese history. Um, yeah. Even though Khan himself says that he's Yikes. not a Japanese film buff, yet you have this like incredible encyclopedic touch point thing of like, you know, here's Godzilla, here's our space movies, here's our like Edo period dramas, you know, like they hit absolutely everything uh, because that's just what she represents. But they're talking about um, Harasetsuko, who had like a a Greta Garbo, I want to be left alone moment. And she basically, she had this incredible career where she was like working with Kurosawa and she was working with like the best of the best. She had this very unconventional sort of look to her, um, was very much known for like how beautiful she was. And then she just all of a sudden left and disappeared. And she went into seclusion and was living with her son and her her daughter-in-law who kind of like kept her legacy for her. So a reporter showed up wanting to write a book about her and she never got to see her. Everything was just whatever document she felt like passing down through her her son is what she would send to this reporter for this reporter kind of to be able to piece together what her history was and why she retired. And you never quite crack what the actual history, like the actual reason why she retired, but you can kind of see that ball of mystery sitting in Millennium Actress of like, I have all the pieces to this puzzle. And obviously we have the key when we watch Millennium Actress in that she had this um, relationship with this uh, young painter who was a political dissident who we at the end of the movie, spoiler alert, find out he was killed. Um, and he's dead and he's never been there. And she's been holding on to this hope that he's been watching her for years and he has uh, she uh, he has never seen her. Um, and that she's been holding on to this key, which he tells her uh, will unlock the most important thing there is. And she will never know what that thing is. Ugh, oh. Sorry, <laughs> crying, thinking about it. But I think there's just something that we have with these celebrities that we will never truly know who they are. They just leave this legacy behind them and they do the things they do for some reason, and yet we can connect so deeply and emotionally to what it is they are leaving on the screen for us that they're able to portray because of whatever they've been through. Like, it's just such a incredibly deep concept of how do we express art? How do we connect with each other? Why do movies matter? Why does acting matter? Why do we have celebrities in the first place? Like, it's just such an unusual way of looking at films and 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 thinking about these things. Yeah, it's like how they say you should never meet your heroes because then yeah. you would know who they are as a person and it would wreck your image of them. You know, um, it's a reason why I don't think I ever want to meet Britney Spears because I think that it would just like crash. <laughs> My life would just come crashing down. You know, <laughs> I, I like I, I want her to be herself. I want her to do her own thing, but I don't need to know everything. You know, I'm OK with it. This is kind of interesting, though, because. We find out that the interviewer in the case of Millennium Actress, like, does have a direct connection with this woman. Like, he's worked with her. So that's a whole different level of connection than just, like, a fan who's watched them on TV. At, at first, at the beginning of the film, you kind of think that that's the case. But we learn that he, um, you know, he was there when she lost this key that ended up being the reason that she, like, exited the industry. It's interesting to think that even though you work directly with somebody, you might not actually know them either. Like you can never fully know what a person or who a person is, um, even if you're close to them, but especially if you're just watching them and observing them from afar, as we do with so many of our celebrities. Mm -hmm. And like the key is such an interesting like framing device for the entire story. 
I'm trying to think actually of like who some other examples of stars who've just like pulled the plug, so to speak, on being public figures. And I don't know if there's anyone like Greta Garbo is obviously the most famous. Yeah. And I think the the biggest thing is that for a long time, there was a misunderstanding of the Greta Garbo quote, because everyone thought that she was saying, um, talking about how lonely she was and that she would never find love. Like that was the way the quote was initially interpreted. And then she had to be very clear of like, no, I want to be left alone. I want you to go away. I want you to leave me alone. And she had to be, she had to clarify that quote, which is so interesting. But I mean, like, usually if something like that happens, there tends to be a substance abuse issue at the core of it where people have to walk away from the lifestyle. Well, I was just going to say, like, you know, I've been thinking about Tina Turner a tiny bit, who just like retired from Mm. public life and was, and you know, this comes a little bit back to Millennium Actress in the sense that it's like, this art you have enjoyed came at great personal cost. And I don't quite feel the same way about it as you guys do. I'm out of here, like, thank you to my fans, but I'm not sure I want to do this anymore. And I think she's like a comparable, um, like I'm I'm more recent than Greta Garbo, like another example of someone doing that. Um, It's a sad topic, but I feel like with both of these movies, with with Perfect Blue and Millennium Actress, I was like, oh my God, I've got to watch these again, but I don't think I can watch these again anytime soon if I'm survive the week but there's there's a lot of um I feel like there's a lot of like uh, nuts to crack still both of these films for me like I'm definitely going to be revisiting Perfect Blue in particular just because of the subject matter yeah they're I mean they're prescient they're beautiful uh we haven't even gotten to one of the one of the big reasons people love Satoshi Kon is he is he might not be a name that you've heard but he is one of the most influential filmmakers and directors that there is. Um, there's a great Every Frame of Painting that unfortunately now defunct uh, YouTube video or YouTube channel um, with an editor who really breaks down how mo- movies work, like from Buster Keaton to Jackie Chan to like like how, how film editing works. Um, and he's got a great one on Satoshi Kon and really talks about the influences that like Aronofsky and Christopher Nolan just steal like moment for moment. They steal story beats. They steal, by which I mean, reinterpret them in their own way, <laughs> in their own way, in their live action films. Yeah. Um, they, they, it's very, very clearly the same shots, the same editing thing. Um, they point out to, that Paprika has four dream circuit, dream sequences, uh, one into the other. Um, and the same thing happens in Inception. Like it's, it's, they're very, very similar styles. And it's because there really isn't anyone or there wasn't anyone like uh, Satoshi Kon and the way he, he edits his film. I think what's crazy about this is that you can actually still follow along, even though it's just jumping from thing to thing to thing and you're a little bit lost. But did, did you ever feel like you were totally lost and weren't able to connect to the emotions of the characters with what was happening? emotionally, I think I was able to connect. Story-wise, I was confused at, at, at the beginning. I was like, wait, what is happening? Like, is this a, is this part of the movie or is this her life story? Like, I, I was confused, but I don't think that that was a bad thing. If anything, it just intrigued me to, like, learn more and continue watching, I would say. Um, this I found a little bit more confusing than Perfect Blue. Like, Perfect Blue just felt like a crazy sort of, like, um, 
fantastical world where you're like, I don't know if she's crazy or if this is really happening. Whereas this was just like a total blend of things where you have sometimes you have the filmmakers in the scene. Sometimes they're integrated into the film within a film. It's like so interesting. And I was reading that Khan wanted to make and if I pronounce this wrong, I apologize to all French people, but um, the the uh, artistic style Trump loyal, which is um, Trump doy. Well, there you go. Becky said it and I won't try again. <laughs> um, I have a French name does not mean that I know how to speak French anyway. Um, but it, it's an optical illusion, essentially. And I think that this like his films are that they're challenging you to look a little bit closer and to revisit, to like pull more things out of his films in each watch. Like you're saying, Sydney, like you're like, I got I got to see Perfect Blue again because you know you're going to catch other things that he put in there on your next watch. And you're you're going to think new things and you're going to read things a different way. Like the first time I watched Perfect Blue, like that, the rape scene, I was like, oh my God. But then when you learn what the context of that scene is, it sort of makes you think about it in a different way. Millennium Actress is also about like revisiting these works and and how we as as film fans revisit these works and analyze them um, and try to pull things out of it. it. It's like a very, I would say, like meta text in that way. Mm-hmm. Lots of layers for sure. Well, I think that's the perfect place for us to leave both of these films. So Emily Gagnier with her French last name, I would like to say thank you <laughs> once again for joining us. It was such a pleasure to have you. It's always a pleasure to be here. And uh, please cut out anything that I mispronounced. <laughs> <laughs> you were fabulous. Sydney Urbanek, man, you are a vault of this sort of information. And it is always such a pleasure wow, having you. Thank you for having me back. Always good to be here. Uh, please tell people how they can read more of your writing and see the kinds of things you're digging up. The easiest place, um, assuming it's still around by the time you listen to this, would be <laughs> Twitter, um, where I'm there at Sid Urbanek. I use that as a good like one-stop place for everything. But yeah, if Twitter no longer exists, then just Google me. I'm sure I'll come up. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds good. And you can join us in two weeks for our final episode of season five and of the podcast. And we're going to end looking at a few naughty girls. It's Femme Fatale and Secretary. And we're going to keep it all in the family with Emily Gagné and Alicia Fletcher. That's coming up in two weeks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies and series that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton. Senior producer is Becky Shrimpton, and co-producers are Alicia Fletcher and Cameron Maitland. And today, featured Emily Gagné and Sydney Urbanek as our guests. Supervising producer is Emily Gagne. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week.